Welcome to our podcast, Multiple Myeloma Morning Commute, Tolerable and Sustainable. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Uncle Peptides and Sanofi Genzyme. In this episode, Dr. Ravi Vish and Dr. Thomas Martin discuss the many treatments for multiple myeloma with a look at how to use them to manage the disease and derive maximum benefit for this patient population. What are some of the common side effects and how are they managed? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma six. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Vish is a professor of medicine in the Division of Medical Oncology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Dr. Martin is a professor of medicine in the Division of Hematology Oncology at the University of California, San Francisco. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Vish will begin our discussion. Hello, my name is Ravi Vinj. I'm a professor of medicine at Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis. Today I have with me Dr. Thomas Martin from the University of California, San Francisco. Welcome, Tom. Hi there, Ravi. Thanks for having me. A pleasure as always. So today we're going to talk about some of the downsides of our new treatments. We certainly have a lot going on in myeloma, a lot of great treatments, but we need to know how to manage these to avail of the benefits of these and to provide the maximum benefit for our patients. So I'm going to start out with Belantamab. What do you do to have your patients remain on this drug? What are the problems that you face and how can we overcome them? So uh, Ravi, as you know, Belantamab is a targeted therapeutic. It targets BCMA um, and it brings a poison, an antibody drug conjugate, it brings a poison to the myeloma cell. Um, the poison actually, the MMAF actually can leach off um, the uh, antibody and cause side effects. And the most common side effect is ocular toxicity or keratopathy, an inflammation on the surface of the cornea. And that is essentially, it's um, seen by when the ophthalmologist does a slit lamp exam. And they also do uh, visual acuity testing to the patient. Now, the slit lamp and the visual acuity has to be done before each dose of belantamab, before they start and then before you give the, the dose every three weeks. To try to mitigate these side effects, we have been using non-preservative eye drops. So we have patients use eye drops you know, every, every two hours while, while awake. And some of the side effects from the keratopathy are dry eyes. And so basically the eye drops help and they actually give, provide some comfort. When somebody actually develops grade two keratopathy, and that's really by the visual, that's moderate changes in the surface of the cornea, we usually will um, stop the dose. Um, we will give them a break from therapy and we'll have them follow up with the ophthalmologist until the toxicity resolves. And then if it resolves readily, we'll start them back on therapy and maybe we'll lengthen out the cycle length. Um, if it takes a little longer, if it takes three weeks or six weeks or longer to recover, sometimes I'll then drop the dose. I'm curious in your practice, how do you manage the ocular toxicity from belantamab? 
I think pretty much along the lines that you uh, stated, what I have started doing actually is just prospectively spacing out the uh, drug even right from the get-go to once every four weeks. And I think that for patients who have any evidence of toxicity, I'm often inclined to, uh, rather than dose reduce, just delay the administration of the drug by a further few weeks. The good thing in the trial was that though these patients required to have their doses held often for several weeks, they rarely progressed during that drug hold. So it is possible that one may not need to give these drugs every three weeks and perhaps less frequent doses that are being explored in trials today will show that every six weeks or every eight week administration, especially in combination, may be feasible. So what has your experience been about uh, blurred vision? Is this permanent? Um, so the, most of the patients, when they develop this keratopathy, they tend to do it not in the center of the eye, but more in the peripheral of the cornea. So sometimes they don't have actually much in terms of visual change. Over time, it can come more central into the central cornea, and that's when you get the visual change. Um, but once you stop the dosing and you let them recover over time, in my experience, it always recovers. It always gets better. And like you said, I've been very impressed with how the response is maintained despite that we're holding drug for sometimes three weeks or six weeks or nine, uh, nine weeks, the patient maintains a response and then I can redose them and continue them on response. And as you know, the duration of remission is upwards of 11 to 12 months, which means patients are able to stay on the therapy that long of a time. I agree. Nearly all my patients have recovered the vision. Uh, if it got blurred, it may take a little while, but it goes back to baseline. So, Selinexor, have you adopted that uh, into your practice, and how do you manage the toxicity there? So we do use Selinexor. Typically, we will use it together with a proteasome inhibitor. Um, and so when you use it together with a proteasome inhibitor, it's typically dosed once a week. Um, and typically 80 milligrams or 100 milligrams once weekly with dexamethasone. When I have anybody on Selenex or whether it's once weekly or twice weekly dosing, I always have them come at least weekly and I give them saline hydration. I check their sodium. I check their CBC um, and make sure their platelets are okay and their neutrophils are okay. If they have any problems with cytopenias, I often will start you know, a, a white blood cell hormone or even a platelet hormone to try to keep their counts good over time. We also sometimes, if, they're, um, if they have low sodiums, we start sodium tablets. And I think you do have to put everybody on antiemetics right from the start. So typically we give them, um, you know, a 5-HT blocker and we give them dexamethasone and often olanzapine also as an antiemetic uh, therapy. I agree. I think being proactive is very important. And generally, if you could get the patient through the first cycle or two, you can actually sometimes back off on some of these more aggressive uh, uh, measures that we take to prevent the toxicity from uh, get, uh, getting worse. Do you give an appetite stimulant to your patients? Yes, sometimes we will also give a, a medication to improve the um, the appetite. And also some sometimes we'll give them something to improve the energy. Um, will give me a, will give them a stimulant. Yeah, I agree. And obviously, they need to have an anti-diarrheal on hand in case uh, diarrhea becomes a problem. But I agree with you. The once a week regimen is, I think, better tolerated 
than the twice weekly regimen that was initially approved. So what about uh, isituximab? Uh, how uh, do you deal with any potential toxicities? Is there much that we should worry about with isituximab? Yeah, so the um, isituximab, uh, as you know, is a CD38 antibody. It's given IV weekly for four doses and then every other week ongoing. The main toxicity is infusion-associated reactions, and that typically occurs in the first infusion. Um, and I think we're all comfortable now with an infusion-associated reactions from monoclonal antibodies. And if it does occur and patients do experience an infusion-associated reaction, we usually stop the infusion, we give them more pre-medications, we'll give them some more steroids or some antihistamines, and then we'll restart the infusion at a slower rate. But almost everybody can complete the, the infusion, that first infusion, and then subsequent infusions go quite well. And actually by the third in, in further infusions, we're actually able to give it over a fast, a more rapid period of time as the package insert um, shows. Other than the infusion-associated reactions, really the, the side effects are mild. Together, when you use it together with pomalidomide, there is the possibility of having blood count suppressions. And so neutropenia does occur, and so does thrombocytopenia. Um, and, and when I have somebody on uh, CD38 together with pomalidomide, I'm quick to pull out the white blood cell hormone to use any one of the white blood cell hormones to try to keep their neutrophils above, above 1,000, and then so I can maintain the dosing of both. I agree. I what about uh, the need for genotyping or phenotyping of red cells? Uh, is that something that we need to do with this antibody as well? That is really a great question. So um, there, there have been some reported differences in terms of how many patients uh, develop um, this abnormal Coombs testing for those receiving CD38 antibodies. With daratumumab, it's pretty much 90 to 100% of patients have a, have a positive um, indirect Coombs test. And, and for those patients, it limits our ability to give blood transfusions. The blood bank can do other ways to do uh, antibody testing, and they can um, you know, get blood prepared for a patient who needs a blood transfusion. Um, but at the end of the day, you need to send a, a test before somebody starts these therapies to your blood bank to test to make sure they don't have antibodies to red blood cell antigens before they start any CD38 antibody. In isituximab, it's actually the, it's about half to 60% of the patients will have that positive Coombs test. So it's a little lower than, than other CD38 antibodies. What about melfufin? Uh, what do we have to do to get our patients through melfufin? Yeah, melfufin actually is a fairly well-tolerated uh, medication. In terms of grade 3 and 4 toxicities, the most common grade 3 toxicity is neutropenia. Um, and so, and typically it's a transient neutropenia that happens into the second or third week after the administration. The administration is once every four weeks. And so we usually check their blood counts weekly for the first cycle or two. Um, and we will use cytokines if they need, if they develop significant neutropenia. Typically, it's transient and it resolves, but also with this, it is an alkylating base agent. Um, so you do have to use antiemetics, and you might need to use antidiarrheals occasionally. Um, the nice thing is, although it is an alkylating agent, they don't patients don't lose their hair. That's that's very nice. So I think the era of our T cells is upon us. So just so that our audience has some inkling of what we should be looking out for 
with CAR T cells, the first of which may be approved within the next few weeks. Yeah, this is pretty amazing, actually. Um, I, I honestly can't believe we're, it, it's so close that we're going to have CAR T cells to be able to treat patients, especially those that have triple class refractory disease. But, you know, CAR T cells have to happen at a specialty center. They have to happen. There's about 70 centers in the U.S. that are going to be fact accredited to perform these therapeutics. Um, and all these centers are licensed to give them, and there'll be a, an appropriate REMS-associated program. And all the centers are going to be, you know, trained in how to treat cytokine release syndrome, how to treat neurotoxicity. I think for uh, physicians that are outside of these centers that are taking care of CAR T-cell patients, what they have to watch out for is neurotoxicity can occur sometimes after they've left the transplant center and the CAR T-cell center. So they have to look for other neurotoxicities. Is there something that's going on that is not typical for this patient? Um, sometimes it can be a neuropathy. Sometimes it can be a change in their level of alertness. You know, they have to really look out for that. And then lastly is infections. These patients have severe deficiencies, often of their immunoglobulins, of IgG, and they are at risk of many infections, including VZV reactivation, um, uh, CMV reactivation, parvovirus reactivation, EBV reactivation, all of these different things can occur. And so if somebody's having symptoms of infection, they need to be worked up extensively and they need to probably um, involve the CAR T-cell center when, they, when the patient presents. Do you have to give them prophylaxis to prevent infections? Yeah, so those, these patients are on prophylaxis for VZV, for PCP. Their CD4 counts are quite low, sometimes low up in, upwards of a year after their therapeutic. And we often, at UCSR, our practice is to give uh, intravenous uh, gamma globulin. And so we give gamma globulin to try to keep their serum IgG level above three, 300 milligrams per deciliter. I agree. I think we take all those precautions as well. And in the first uh, phase of neutropenia, then giving them uh, antibiotic prophylaxis for gram negatives and fungal prophylaxis often uh, is needed. So yes, I think we have a lot uh, of new drugs and these like any uh, will have some downsides, but I think that if we have a plan on how to manage these drugs, we can get our patients through these and give patients the benefit of the progression-free survival and the advantage in overall survival that these drugs contribute to. So once again, Tom, thanks a lot. It was a very engaging conversation. And I think that hopefully with good management, we can get our patients through these drugs without much of a problem. Thank you very much. Nice talking to you, Ravi. Thank you. Remember, to receive your credit and evaluate this program, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma six. For all the episodes in the six-part series, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash multiple myeloma. Thank you for joining us today.